There we go. Welcome to the Tuesday Night Bible Study. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Those of you that are here in person, if you need a Bible, there are some back on that table back there. And um, we are, uh, 1 Corinthians is a church written, uh, a church in Greece. This letter is written by Paul. This is a troubled church with all kinds of issues. Um, this book that we call 1 Corinthians, we're going to learn tonight, is actually 2 Corinthians. There was a letter he wrote before this that we don't have. He's going to mention it in a little while here. In any case, what they have going on is a lot of division. There's a lot of worldliness. We're going to learn about some other problems tonight. Um, but they are looking down upon the Apostle Paul, who founded the church, gave them the gospel. He's really their spiritual father in a sense. Obviously, God is the real spiritual father, but... He sort of assisted in the birth, you might say, by spreading the gospel there in Corinth. They are looking down on him and not really listening to him. And there are all kinds of little divisions in this church going on that he's dealing with. So in verse 14 is where we're going to pick it up. Those of you that are here in person, so I know that you're awake, say amen. Amen. Good one. Wow. And those of you on Zoom, uh, I see a couple of amen signs. Wonderful. And see you waving over there in Vanuatu, um, halfway around the world. Verse 14, chapter 4. I'm writing this. He's just gotten done sort of reading them the riot act and disciplining them. I'm writing this, verse 14, not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for in Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. So he's sort of using exaggeration, almost a little humor. They've got their, there's factions or little groups in the church that say, well, I'm a Pauline Christian, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Peter, and I'm of this teacher, and they're, so they're starting to divide. And he's saying, even if you had thousands and thousands of teachers, there would even really only be one father, the person that led you to Christ. He's sort of making the case that they ought to give him more respect um, so that they'll listen to him in this letter and the previous letter as well. Um, so let's see. You don't have many fathers. The word for guardians there, uh, in just real quick, is paedagogos, which means a tutor or a guide. In those days, um, someone would be assigned to your child. If you were working and your wife was busy in the home, your child would have to go to school. This person would be assigned to your child to take them to school, bring them home. He would listen to them as they recite the lessons that they've learned and what have you. That's the word for teaching a child, correcting them. They, they would um, learn from this person, but not nearly as much as they would learn from their own father or mother kind of thing. Uh, so verse 16, um, yeah, verse 16, we, we briefly touched on this verse last time. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. As I told you last week, I would never say that to you. Be like me. And my wife would go, mm, you probably shouldn't. But the point is, Paul is saying, and he says elsewhere, imitate me, be imitators of me as I am an imitator of Christ. He admits in the book of Romans that he still deals with sin, but he's saying, be imitators of me because I'm your spiritual father. I led you to Christ kind of thing. Um, 
So we do learn by imitating others, don't we? It's been said that values are caught, not taught, and that you can tell your kids a bunch of stuff or grandkids, but they will watch you and imitate your example. You can tell them don't do something, but then if you do it, they might be more likely to uh, do it, right? Whether it's good or bad. Um, let's see. So be imitators. It's literally the word is mimics is what he's saying there. He's not exalting himself. He's saying, I'm an imitator of Christ. Imitate me in that way. Um, yeah, we already talked about that. Verse 17. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Now, Timothy, if you know your Bible, there's two books with his name, first and second Timothy. Timothy didn't write them. He, uh, these are, those are letters Paul wrote to Timothy. Timothy is a much younger believer, sort of Paul's protege. Paul introduces him to the gospel, as does his grandmother and um, other relatives, Timothy's. Um, and so Paul takes him under his wing and makes Timothy a very young and somewhat timid pastor. So those letters, First and Second Timothy, are part of what we call in the New Testament the pastoral letters or epistles, where it's advice for pastors. So if you're a pastor or an elder, those are especially good books for you to read. Timothy has a problem with uh, nerves and with being timid, and because he's younger, teaching older people, there's some tension there. You see that in those books. But Timothy was Paul's Swiss army knife. He sent him everywhere to solve problems, and so he says in that verse, I'm sending Timothy to you, because Paul can't come right at the moment. He's in Ephesus as he's writing this. I've sent to you Timothy, my son, he doesn't mean that literally, but in the faith, it's his son. As far as we know, Paul had no kids. My son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. In other words, I'm giving him my stamp of approval. Listen to him. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus. He's going to testify, Timothy will, that Paul is the real deal. Genuinely sold out for Jesus in a good way. And he, Timothy is coming in Paul's place. He will remind you of my way of life, which agrees with what I teach everywhere and in every church. That's a slight little dig there because there's such a thing as head knowledge. I know what the Bible says. And then you watch the guy's life or gal's life and you say, well, they may know it here, but they're certainly not living it out. That's what the Corinthian church was doing. We said when we started this book, the Corinthian, uh, that Corinth, that city, was especially a sinful place. R Romans and others that didn't live there coined the term, they made Corinthian into an adjective. If somebody was a total drunk or a totally loose person morally in terms of sex, they would say, oh yeah, he's a Corinthian. That's how bad Corinth was, okay? So the problem is they're believers, but they're the world and the sin of that area is seeping into the church more and more and more. And the church is kind of in trouble. That's why he's writing this second letter to them. Um, okay. So that's what he, he teaches. Notice he says everywhere in every church. 
Paul has churches he's planted all over the place in that area. He just keeps going from place to place, visiting them, pastoring them, teaching, and what have you. As we've said, there's no printing press. That doesn't happen for centuries. What they do is hand copy each letter. I've got Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. Oh, I've got Colossians. Oh, I've got 1 Timothy. I'll trade you a copy. And so that's how these were being spread. But more than even that, it was verbally transmitted. So Timothy's coming to them. They may have thought, oh, Paul's afraid to come back to us. He's sending his lieutenant, which is why uh, what he's about to write happens. Um, Verse 18, some of you have become arrogant. The word means like puffed up, okay, kind of a little conceited. They didn't value Paul. They thought he's afraid to face us, okay, So they think, oh, Paul's bark is worse than his bite. So this is a very prideful church. They're very proud of their Christianity, despite the fact they've got all these problems. Some of you become arrogant as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, verse 19, if the Lord's willing. And then I'll find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. In other words, it's one of those, you know what so-and-so said about you? And then you go to them and go, come on, say it to my face now. And the person usually goes, oh, I didn't say that, you know, kind of thing. So he wants to go to them because he cares. He wants to, this is very pastoral love, but firm love that is tough love and might be disciplinarian. Uh, in its nature. I'll come to you very soon. Notice if the Lord's willing, I'll find out how these arrogant people are talking. I want to hear it firsthand. People have told him. Uh, Verse 20, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Now, this is one of the verses, and there are others from which Christians get the idea, and it's biblical, that there's such a thing as a said faith. Praise Jesus. I believe in God. I read the Bible. God bless you as opposed to a real faith. What you say is important, but if all you're doing is saying it and living a totally different way, and it hasn't really seeped into your heart and your mind and your lifestyle, that's not a real faith. It's a said faith. How many know that there are people that say they're Christians and they may not be? By the way, it's not your um, responsibility or mine to judge. She's a believer. He's not. He's not. She is. He is. But we can be fruit inspectors, look at people's lives and what have you. Um, the old saying, it doesn't, just because you're in a garage, it doesn't make you a car. Or if you swim in a lake, it doesn't make you a duck, right? Just because you're in a church, there's people in churches every Sunday, I believe, that are there for other reasons other than the gospel that aren't really, really saved. Um, So the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Okay, now what do you mean by power? You mean like political power? No. I mean the power that can change a life where nothing else can. Earlier, he spoke of the philosophy of the Greeks love to talk philosophy and how many angels can dance on the head of a pin and all these, I think, therefore I am, Descartes said. Great. All that philosophy, Aristotle, Plato, all of it, combine it all, modern day and thousands of years ago, put it all together. 
Learn all of it, and you will be no closer to God or heaven than if you had never heard any of it. Because the kingdom of God is power. It's God's power coming into us in the form of the Holy Spirit. The kind of power that takes a drug addict and makes him clean, or a drunk and makes him clean, or an adulterer, or a thief, or whatever it may be, a liar, a violent man, and makes him clean. The kind of power that changes lives from the inside out. That is, folks, real power. So um, let's keep rolling. Verse 21. This is kind of a little bit of a threat in a way. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline? Or shall I come in love with a gentle spirit? In other words, how are you going to receive me? Still rebellious and angry toward me and degrading to me? Or are you going to submit to my leadership since I'm the one that planted the church? Um, the word for rod is, a, is the tall stick that a shepherd would use to discipline a wayward or rebelling sheep, get back in line kind of thing. In Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Remember all that? There's a great part of that um, that says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. That's an astounding thing that God is with us. The next phrase is, your rod and your staff, they comfort me, okay? Rod was more of a disciplinarian thing. Staff was the long straight stick with a hook at the end so that if there was a straying sheep just a little bit, you could hook the head and just gently, hey, get back in line. But the rod was more whack the sheep. As a matter of fact, there were sheep that were so rebellious that would not get back with the other sheep that the shepherd would have to break their legs and carry them back and teach them to obey what's what's the point of all this joe just this that he says in that psalm uh the lord you are with me your rod and your staff even the the rod of discipline it comforts me that's going to come up in the next chapter it's important that we have someone greater all-knowing than us that can discipline us and tell us when we're off track because some of us are more stubborn than others. And he might tell me, Joe, no offense, but you seem like you're getting off track and I might not listen. But God himself will discipline, Hebrews says, those that he loves as a good father would. So shall I come to you with a rod of discipline? Or shall I come in love or with, and with a gentle spirit? It's a rhetorical question. In other words, he's saying, how submissive and open are your ears going to be to listen to what I have to say? That will determine whether I come disciplining you and cleaning house like Jesus did in the temple or with a gentle spirit. They're very um, repentant, if you will. Let me just look at my notes here before we go to the next chapter. Um, that's just the wrap up of chapter four. Jesus was very gentle, wasn't he? Not always. Do you remember him in the temple, clearing out the temple, turning over tables and scattering coins flying all over the place? And he took that very seriously, didn't, didn't he? That they were making his, the house of God, into a den of thieves, he says at that time. So, um, all right, let's dive on, dive on into chapter five at this point. Um, quick introduction, this whole chapter is about a specific incident in that church. 
What I don't want you to do is listen and say, oh, this doesn't affect me. I'm not doing that. Nobody in my church is doing this. Move on. Listen, there are lessons to be learned for every single one of us. And I'm going to turn this story on its head and show you um, that it is important that you belong to a church. Okay. The whole chapter is all about a dude going to the Corinthian church. Okay. He's often there. He's a member. Maybe he's a wealthy guy. I don't know. He's a younger man and he's sleeping with his father's wife, living with her, might've married her. Okay. But it's incest. Okay. The father is still alive. That's not the situation. It's not his mom biologically, or they would say that. That also is incest. But the Romans and the Greeks considered it um, an abomination, whether you slept with your real mother biologically or um, I'm hooking up with my dad's wife. Okay. I'm guessing on this that his dad, let's say his dad is 60 or 70, maybe he's got a hot little younger wife. I don't know. But the younger guy has taken his dad's wife and is either living with her. I don't think he married her, but some commentaries mention that. That's the background. You say, ew. Everybody say, ew. Okay. Yeah. All right. It's not in the Bible, but it's a Greek word. Look it up. Ew. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 5. If any, uh, oh, oh gosh, am I on the wrong thing? Let me see. No, yes, there it is. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not even occur among pagans or unbelievers. A man has his father's wife. Do you see that? Okay, this isn't just some dude that lives down the street. He's a church member. He's a professing Christian. I love the Lord Jesus. I'm a believer. He's in the church. The pastor, whoever it is, elders, know about it. Every, you're going to see everybody knows about it. Paul got wind of it miles and miles away. Okay? It's scandalous. Both the Greeks and the Romans considered it, listen to this, not only scandalous and ew and gross, but it was illegal as well. This church is looking the other way on sin. Okay? Let's not bother anybody. As we get into this, we're going to talk about the common objection to what we're going to read. Do you know what it is? Jesus said, judge not, lest you be judged. So leave the guy alone. He's sleeping with his dad's wife. Don't judge. We're going to talk about, does that fit here or not? What does it matter if the guy is sinning this way? By the way, um, verse 1, there's sexual immorality. Do you see that in verse 1? That's the Greek word. Listen to it. Pornea, P-O-R-N, as in porn, pornography. It doesn't mean pornography. He's not looking at foldouts of his dad's wife, but 
It's a general word for sexual immorality. In that culture, it include, it started out meaning just a guy that goes to a prostitute. It ended up being expanded to mean any sexual perversion from incest to prostitutes to homosexuality to um, transgenderism and all that stuff. You hear those words today, right? How many genders are there? Two. Okay. That'll be on the test. You might want to write that down. Just kidding. Um, so he said, it's actually reported there's sexual immorality among you, a kind that doesn't even occur among the pagans. That's how bad it is. And they're not doing anything about it. Nobody's going to the guys saying, hey, what's the story here? And, you know, you call yourself a Christian and this is um, sexual sin. Um, so, and by the way, pornography itself would be now included. We grew up in an era where um, if you were a kid, 10, 12, 14 years old, it wasn't easy to get your hands on pornography. Somebody's father had it or something, and you couldn't buy it at some places. Nowadays, as you know, it's free everywhere online, right? No, unobstructed. It has been said that the most searched term on Google generally is porn, pornography, people looking at it. In a recent survey, I can barely get the words out of my mouth, 40% of pastors admit to having a problem with pornography. Um, okay, so that's what's going on here. Um, we already talked about that. So this is not, oops, he slipped once. This is an ongoing, unrepentant sin going on. And the, the culture outside of the church knows about it. The church all knows about it. It's scandalous. And they are, ready for this word, 21st century? They're a tolerant church. We're tolerant here. We're we just love everybody. Jesus accepts everybody just the way they are. Does he? Yes, but he loves them enough to not leave them the way they are, right? He, all of you are not the same you were the way you were before you came to Christ, all of you, neither am I. So uh, they're very accepting, they're very tolerant. Um, it should have been enough, forget the culture, what they think, and they thought it was an abomination. It should have been enough that it's clearly spelled out in the Bible, as sin. That should have been enough. But they're very proud of the fact that they're very progressive as a church. And we just let people, you know, let it all hang out. Whatever you want to do here, we have liberty in Christ. Not that kind of liberty. Now, David sinned, do you remember, with Bathsheba. David was married. Bathsheba was married not to each other. He took somebody else's wife, slept with her, and ended up having her husband killed and then married her. You say, well, what about him? He repented. Do you remember? And he says in Psalm 51, to God, remember, who did he sin against? He sinned against her husband. He sinned against her. He sinned against his own wife, or dare I say it, wives. That's a whole nother thing. He sinned against his own body. We'll learn later in this book. What does he say in Psalm 53? Surprising. He says to God, Against you and you only have I sinned. 
In other words, you gave me this body, you've saved me, and here I am using your body, the body you gave me, as an instrument of sin. He repented of it. The dude in this church is proud of his sexual freedom and is not repenting. Um, okay, so uh, verse 2. So a man has his father's wife, verse one, and you are proud. He's being sarcastic. You're so proud of how great your church is. Shouldn't you rather have been mourning or filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Do you see that? There's a word for that, excommunication. You want it in modern English? Kick him out. Assuming he won't, repent. Now in Matthew 18, Jesus gives a formula for what are you supposed to do in that situation? You know about a sin and it doesn't have to be he's got his father's wife or he's sleeping around or homosexuality or what if he's a drunk or a thief or whatever. And this is a person that's professing to be a Christian. Got the picture? It's not somebody out there. Paul's about to say the people that are outside the church, God will judge them. We're not supposed to judge them. Why are all those people sinning? If they're not believers, that's why. But believers are supposed to live a certain way. Matthew 18 produces a formula. Three steps. Step number one, you know that Harold over here is sinning, listen, as a habit. Not he slipped last Thursday, he never gets drunk, and he got roaring drunk. That's bad. You might talk to him about it. This is ongoing. This guy's drunk every night or he's sleeping around every night or whatever it may be. You go to him privately, Matthew 18. In fact, let's turn there. Why, why should Joe mess it up? Go to Matthew 18, take a left from 1 Corinthians, maybe eight or nine books and find Matthew 18. Um, and Matthew 18, verse 15 is what we're looking for. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So go before Mark and Luke to Matthew 18. Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. You don't have to shame him publicly yet. Harold, you're doing this. I know that you're doing it. It's a sin. The Bible says it. The word of God says it's a sin. You have to stop doing that. If he listens to you, I'm still in verse 15. You've won your brother over. And he says, you know what? You're right. Tears, you know, I'm going to repent. I'm going to stop doing whatever the sin is. On the other hand, verse 16, but if he will not listen, he says, get lost. I have the freedom in Christ. It's not that bad. I'm not a murderer or anything, right? God will understand. This is the one I hate the most. He's, God's the one that gave me these desires give me a break. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along. So you bring two other, one or two other Christian sisters, if it's a woman, um, men, if it's a man. And so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So the three of you go and knock on Harold's door again. And you come in and you say, we're all agreed. This is sin that you're doing it. You admit you're doing it. Are you willing to repent now? Because a little more peer pressure, right? Three against the one or two. And he says, get lost. I'm enjoying myself. 
Keep reading. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, plural, this is kind of shocking. Tell it to the church. You mean the whole church? Yes. Publicly? Publicly. Because he's sinning blatantly and publicly, okay? And it's assumed that the Corinthian church with this dude with his father's wife is unrepentant. Someone's talked to him. He's not willing to repent. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Turn back to 1 Corinthians. What does that mean? It means treat him like an unbeliever. Translation, you have to leave the church, Harold, until you repent. Okay, this is going to get a little controversial. I just want to warn you in 1 Corinthians, it's going to sound a little extreme. I'm going to show you that it's not extreme at all. It's necessary. And I'm going to hypothetically go through, what if the church just lets it go? What does that do to the gospel, to the Lord Jesus, to that church, to Christianity as a whole? What does the outside world think? Okay, go back to chapter 5 in 1 Corinthians. Are you still awake? Say amen. Amen. Okay, you guys on Zoom, are you awake? Okay. And you are proud, verse 2, you should rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this. Verse 3, even though I'm not physically present, he's writing a letter from far away, I'm with you in spirit. And I've already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. Paul's been given the facts. Paul hears, oh man, did the guy, is he willing to repent and talk about it? No. So he's present with them in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm one verse ahead. I've already passed judgment, verse three, on the one who did this, just as if I were present. Verse four, when you're assembled, you mean the whole church? The whole church. And mind you, in this day and age, this day that this was happening, churches met in houses. Somebody has a big family room and we'll get 80 people in there. One other difference to now is that in every city, Christianity is very new here. There's only one church, right? Nowadays, you kick me out of this church, I'll find another church. In fact, I'll look for a nice loosey-goosey church where they don't care if I sleep around. Not so. He's gonna, you're either in this church in Corinth or you're out in the world. And the world is Satan's domain. That's going to come out in a second. When you're assembled, verse 4, in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present when you're all there worshiping together, learning together. Verse 5, do what? Hand this man over to Satan. What? He's a Christian, is he? We're about to find out. Hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature or the flesh may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Translation, kick him out. Explain why to the whole congregation. Wait, aren't you just digging up dirt? It's the truth, okay? We're not trying to shame him just for shame's sake. We're doing this because listen, the goal is the purity of the church, but more importantly, restoration for Harold. Okay? 
if this is what it takes, right? Because you can say to your little four-year-old, don't touch those chocolates. And he eats one and you go, I told you, don't touch them. And you raise your voice and he eats two more with a big chocolate mustache on. It may be time for taking the chocolates and him away from each other and punishment, right? Okay. When you're assembled, publicly do it. Hand him over to Satan. What do you mean? I mean, inside a church. I don't mean the building. I mean, being with other believers in fellowship and in obedience to God. There's a certain protection that occurs here that when you're kicked out, you can't come to this church anymore. You're in a sense now outside the umbrella, okay, and liable to get punished out there by the world, by Satan, by your own conscience, whatever the case may be. There are several theories about exactly what's going on here, but everybody agrees he's saying, get him out. He's going to take a little detour and come back and actually say it, expel him. He does it already in um, verse 2. You see it? What you should have done has been filled with grief and should have put him out of your fellowship. Verse 2. Hand this man over to Satan so that something will happen. The sinful nature or the flesh, NIV has sinful nature, the flesh may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. The goal is repentance on the part of this guy. It's such a shock to his system that everybody publicly said, we all agree this is wrong, you're out. It's such a shock to his system, he's not allowed to fellowship here. Go back to Matthew 18, treat him like a tax collector. Does that mean you can't talk to him? No, you could say hi, but you're not going to have him over your house for dinner anymore, nor his little wife that used to be his father's wife. Um, you are handing him over to Satan, which is the God of small g of this world, right? To the extreme thing that maybe the guy, some, this is one theory, the guy may get sick or be injured and die. The flesh may be destroyed. Some see that as the flesh may be destroyed, meaning his fleshly nature that's ruling his life is going to stop ruling his life. He'll come back to the church repentant in tears. I'll never do that again. We broke up. She moved out. I'm sorry. But some see it as the flesh, the body. He'll actually die, but that's better. And at least his soul, if he's a true believer, will be saved. Controversial. Let's face it. If the guy gets kicked out of the church and months go by and years go by and he's still living with her, having a great old time, you might wonder about how real was this guy's faith? Doesn't, you know, as an unbeliever, when I sinned, I had a, just a great time. And then Jesus came along and ruined sin for me. Drugs, alcohol, it just, I started feeling so guilty. Yay, right? It's a good thing. It's a healthy thing. But for someone that just continues in sin, you have to wonder, are they truly saved? We all have a conscience, Romans 2 says, but the Holy Spirit living inside of you, that's the definition of a true believer, is a louder clearer conscience that gets your attention and mine ought to. So if Harold gets kicked out of the church and five years go by and they're still shacking up, 
I wonder. On the other hand, Harold gets kicked out of the church and three weeks later comes back in tears and says, I don't know what I was thinking. Thank you. Those of you that talked to me, the one guy, the three guys, and then the whole church, thank you for doing what needed to be done. Right? So far, all we're talking about is the guy. What about the girl? They don't mention her here. Almost every commentary I read said the same thing. The woman is not a believer, doesn't go to that church, or they would have mentioned her, kick them both out. He comes to church Sunday without her. Kick him out of the church. They're not judging her. She's an unbeliever. Is it a sin for her? Absolutely. God will take care of that in judgment day. We, what does 1 Peter say? I think it's 1 Peter. Judgment begins where? In the house of God. Has to. Because we live by a much higher standard, don't we? So, um, by the way, under Mosaic law, the Old Testament law, if a man slept with his mother, uh, slept with his mother, incest, or sister, or whatever, or brother, or slept with his father's <laughs> wife, they saw it as the same thing. Incest. Penalty. Death for both of them. Old Testament. Jewish law. Pretty amazing. Uh, so, um, let's see. Terms. Okay, there are, we're going to see it later in this book. We'll, he's going to talk about homosexuality in a variety of flavors, by the way, I'll show you later. But there's two main terms for, besides porneia, which is general immorality. Okay, when it comes to sex, the Bible divides it into two things. You probably know one of them. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not commit adultery. What's adultery? Person A is married to person B but he's having sex with person C, or she's having sex with person C. You with me? In a marriage, sex is a union between two people, and it's a beautiful thing. God takes it very seriously, right? All the way back to the Garden of Eden. Any sex where there's a marriage, and the two people, it's not them, it's somebody else, that's adultery. Everybody knows that. The other word you may see that King James always has it is fornication. Have you seen that word? What's fornication? Sex before marriage, sex when you're single, homosexuality, all that other stuff. Kind of covers everything. Would include porneia, pornography as well. Okay, so their attitude, Paul is kind of saying in verse two, you're so proud that you're progressive and you're very tolerant. And that's almost worse than how bad the sin is with this dude and his girlfriend. Uh, let's see. Yeah, they're saying, look how loving, how open-minded we are. They should have been grieving. They should have kicked him out. Um, blatant immorality in a church must be judged. Go with me for a second on this. Imagine Harold, who's sleeping with his father's wife, um, is a Christian, but he's one of those Christians. You ever meet these people? I don't need a church. I can worship God anywhere I go, which is true, but I don't need a church. I don't need to be around other believers. It's between me and God, my religion. Guess what? Now there's no one to approach him like the church did, like the brothers did, right? That's why it's better that you're in a 
fellowship of believers. Because you know what? We tend to think, oh, he's doing what? That's a sin. And also, I'm doing what? It's not that bad, right? You kind of grade on a curve when it's you. I'm glad to point my finger at him or him or him or her, but it's, you know, it's not that bad, you guys. We really love each other, right? It's God's will that I sleep with my dad's will. Give me a break. So he, the guy is better off that he at least was in a church. We're never told whether the dude repents and comes back or flies the coop and, and maybe was not saved at all. Um, okay, so blatant immorality has to be dealt with. Go back to chapter five. Number one, kick him out, judge the sin. Um, he, Paul's already passed judgment in verse three. Do you see it? When they're assembled together, it's going to be tense. It's going to be a little weird. I will tell you that we've done this in this church. Okay. Oh, it's so judgmental. It's biblical. Sorry. It was not, listen, hearsay. You know what I heard so-and-so did? It was researched to where it was um, confirmed, and the person was not repentant, was stubbornly arrogant. And they were a member of this church, and we had to have them twice, and we had to remove them. The church that tolerates sin, we're about to see, sin is going to be compared to leaven or yeast. Okay, and just a very little bit will corrupt the whole thing. They didn't have this word then, I don't think. I like to compare it to cancer. Who in their right mind would say to the doctor, oh, there's cancer where? In, in your lungs. Okay, both lungs? Yes. Okay, but we can do this and that surgery. We can do, there's several treatments we can do. Who in their right mind would say, well, you know, the cancer cells have a right to live too. Leave them alone. No, no, you want it. You know what you tell the doctor? Get every bit out. Every last morsel. That's going to come up again and again tonight uh, if the teacher can get his act in gear. Um, so, yeah, excommunicate the unrepentant sinner um, when you're assembled together. Hand him over to Satan. Kick him out. And let him know that's what we're doing. Is that where you want to be? The whole church believes what the word says, that what you're doing is sin. Are you so arrogant as to say, well, no, I know it's not sin. We do fool ourselves, don't we? But we're in love. It's okay if we're in love. Where's that in the book of Illusions, chapter 4? Let's keep reading. Your boasting is not good. By the way, last thing, I said it earlier. The goal of all this is not finger pointing. The goal is the repentance of the person. But there's more. The other goal is you, you know, Jeff and Doreen are married. He's not sleeping with his father's wife or anybody else, and neither is she, right? So we're sitting in the church watching this unfold with Harold, you know what that does? It makes me realize, wow, this church treats sin seriously. And in a way, it's a little bit of a deterrent, isn't it? 
I'm not doing that. I don't want to be shamed by everybody. And they're right. It's a sin. We ought to not want to do it anyway. What else? What about the outside world that's watching the church going, look at them. They say they're so holy. And you know, you know about Harold. Yeah, he goes to that church. Nobody cares. Um, so what else? What about Christ? We're his. What about God the Father? We're his children. Do, are they to assume, hmm, God the Father doesn't really care what you do. Pretty cool. I may go to that church. I've got a couple girlfriends, and I might go to that church now. It might also create division in the church, because there will surely be some people that think we ought to be doing something about Harold. They're so proud most weren't doing that. Let's take our two-minute break right now and stretch our aging bones. Your job, if you're here, is to make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. It's very, very important. And those of you on Zoom, I'll be right back in two minutes. Don't go away. Here we go. Welcome back to the Tuesday Night Bible Study. Those of you uh, that are here, find your seats. And those of you on Zoom, um, we'll continue. Um, somebody came up to me and mentioned, and it does say it twice. Kind of an interesting question. Um, verse 3, Paul says, I'm with you in spirit. Verse 4, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I am with you in spirit. What does that mean? We say that, don't you? I couldn't come to the party, but I was with you guys in spirit. We say it, and it means I wish I could have been there with you. I really, if I could have been there, I would have. I think that's the way Paul means it. He does not mean, although his body and his soul were in Ephesus or somewhere else, spiritually, he astral projected and traveled in his spirit it doesn't mean that, okay? But there are new age teachings that say you can, your spirit can leave your body. I was explaining that um, in England, I don't know if you know this, centuries ago, that a superstition started, which was when you sneeze for a second, your spirit leaves your body and you're susceptible to demons and the devil. And so that's why, God bless you. That's why that, do you ever wonder why? Why am I saying that? Someone sneezes, they believe the spirit could leave, and we, I better protect Jeff here. God bless you. You got to say it, or else it's just like kind of a wife still. So anyway, um, let's see. Verse 6. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay, good. Verse 6. Your boasting is not good. They're boasting about how open-minded they are, how tolerant, how kind they are. Um, Let's see, we already talked about that. I'm, I'm on the wrong page of notes. Talk amongst yourselves while I figure out where I'm going here. Oh, you know where we need to go real quickly? Take a right and go to 1 Timothy. From here, go over about, you know, eight or nine books. It's the section where they all start with the letter T. 1 Timothy, there's Thessalonians first and second, and then go to 1 Timothy. I want to show you an interesting verse, very similar. 1 Timothy chapter 1 He's talking about false teachers. Look at the end of verse 19. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Same thing. They were in the church. They were being false prophets. They were blaspheming. 
Blasphemy is saying anything about God, but it's not true. That he isn't God, or Jesus wasn't God, or that I am God, or you're God. We're all God's new age movement. We're all God's. These two, Paul turned them over to Satan, meaning what? He kicked them out of the church. Until you learn not to blaspheme, we can't have you doing that here. Sorry. It's the loving thing to do. Listen, for the church, it's the loving thing to do in terms of Christ to protect the true doctrine of the Bible. It's the loving thing to do for Harold or Hymenaeus or Alexander to correct them lovingly but forcefully. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Okay, if you've ever baked bread, you know about yeast. You can have a pretty good-sized lump of dough, and very little yeast will make the dough what? Rise. It's interesting. Yeast, leaven, same thing, most of the time in the Bible is a symbol of sin. There is a, pa a passage, it's either Mark, or I think it's Matthew 13, where Jesus uses leaven as a good thing. But almost always leaven, yeast, is bad. Very little, a very little amount of it will permeate the whole thing. It'll grow like a cancer. That's what he's saying in verse 6. Your boastings isn't, boasting isn't good. Don't you know a little yeast works through the whole batch? It'll spread like a disease, like cancer. You want to get every single bit of it. Okay. Now, um, we already talked about that. Um, yeah, and that. By the way, Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5 lied about a gift they made. And Paul accuses them uh, of, or Peter, of lying to the Holy Spirit. Okay? He confronts each of them individually. This is in a church. Okay? And each of them drops dead. You remember? Judgment of God. Don't worry, it probably won't happen tonight, but <laughs> anyway, watch me keel over now. Aha! No. Anyway, um, let's see. We're about to talk about the Passover in this. You say, wait, Corinth is Gentile territory. They're not Jews. I know, but Paul's a Jew. He taught them. He brought them the gospel, which includes the Old Testament and the Passover we're going to talk about that. Yeast is a big deal in the Passover, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. I'll get there in a second. But the point of verse 6 is a little bit of sin that you allow in a church. Herald, oh, somebody's phone went off. Whenever that happens, that means I said one right thing. That's when that occurs. God is letting us know, Joe, first time. Herald in that church with his little wife that's his dad's wife is the yeast in that church left alone it's going to start making the other men think i guess i guess that's okay here i wonder what else is okay so i might come to church drunk once or on drugs or because this is a very loving church listen it's not loving to not correct what we know is wrong Get the yeast out before it spreads. That's the point of verse 6. Verse 7. Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. 
for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. You say, wait, well, that came out of left field. Okay, here's the story. What's the story of Passover? The Jews have been taken prisoner the whole nation, over a million people, and they are slaves in Egypt, forced to make bricks under horrible conditions. Um, they are slaves. They want their freedom. God tells Moses, I've chosen you to be my spokesman. Get them out of, those are my people. Get them out of there. You're going to take them toward the promised land. After some arguing with God, which is always stupid, Moses tells God, you got the wrong guy. And God says, you think? I don't think so. You're my guy. So there's Pharaoh, who's the head of Egypt, right? The president, the king, the premier, whoever you want to say. And he's godless. And so God says to Moses, go talk to him. Me? Yes. Tell him, I said, the God of the Jews, Yahweh says, let my people go. So he goes, okay. And then, Pharaoh, hi. Um, God says, let my people go. Get, get lost, right? Pharaoh says. So God says, tell him, if you don't let my people go, a series of plagues are going to happen. It's almost comical. Read it in Exodus. We studied Exodus maybe eight or 10 years ago in this Bible study. So then there's the plagues that start happening. Ridiculous things. A million frogs and darkness and all these different things happen. And Pharaoh is hardening his heart. He sees the miracles and says, no, I'm not letting your people go. Nine plagues go by like this and Pharaoh won't do it. The 10th plague, Moses is told by God, now I'm not kidding around. Go tell Pharaoh, I'm going to kill the firstborn child in every single household unless you let my people go. And so, um, before Moses goes, God says, by the way, all you Jews, this is your Passover. Because I'm going to send the angel of death who's going to go over every single house and kill the firstborn right there and right there, sort of like a spy balloon in a way, but with lasers. Anyway, don't get me. Maybe there's classified documents. Who knows? But anyway, so he tells Moses to protect the Jews. Make sure everybody knows. Find a lamb without blemish perfect lamb. That's going to be the sacrifice for your household. Do you know why? Because those Egyptians are sinners, and so are you Jews. Oh, so don't think we're the holy ones. Listen, you're not. You're sinners too. You need a sacrifice, a perfect lamb without blemish, meaning no sin if it was a human being, which it is here. It's Christ. We'll get to that. So, he gives instructions God does to Moses. Moses tells the people, God says, I know this is a little weird, folks. Find a lamb with no blemish. Don't sacrifice the one lamb you find with three legs and one eye that's kind of, you know, barely can walk. A perfect lamb. Sacrifice it. But what's interesting is, if you know the whole story, we're getting too into Exodus here, but it's important. They don't just find a lamb and cut, cut its, slit its throat and start skinning it and then we'll eat it. The lamb has to live for several days in the house with 
the family, listen, like a pet. Where the kids probably, let's name him Fuzzy or Whitey. And then there's great love. And then all of a sudden we have to kill it. What? They have to kill the lamb. They are to spread the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and on the cross beam of the door so that when the angel of death comes he will pass over your house because he sees your faith in what i told you to do the blood of that lamb will protect your house because it's been sacrificed for your sins um, from the angel of death so they do it and of course the egyptians don't know about this so when the angel of death shows up he sees their house and their house and his house and his house and their house blood blood Blood. The blood saves them. Sound familiar? Jesus, blood, sacrifice, blemishless, sinless. But the Egyptians wake up in the morning and they're screaming and moaning and groaning because the firstborn child in every house, including Pharaoh's, is dead. Just like Moses warned him, you better let my people go. Okay. But there's something else. It's not just the sacrifice and the lamb did it all. Yeast, leaven, is a symbol, listen, of sin. Got it. Tell the Jews that they are to go through their whole house and take out anything with leaven, with yeast. Find it in the corners of the house. The kids would have a little contest to search for it. And you're supposed to bake bread. Oh, bread, great. And we'll put some yeast, no yeast, flat. To show we don't have time for, wait for it to rise, because soon Pharaoh's going to say, okay, you Jews are such a pain in my, you know what? Get lost. You can leave. All of you can go. You win, at least temporarily. So now go back to verse 7. 6 says, a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. That's why I get rid of all the yeast, which is a symbol of sin. Look at verse 7. Get rid of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without it, as the church, and in each life, as you really are. For Christ, that's Jesus, our Passover lamb, has been, past tense, sacrificed. The Jews would celebrate after that Passover every single year. Do you know why? Well, it worked before, yes, but since then, you know what you did? You sinned again, all of you. Me too. So the head of the household finds a lamb without blemish. We do it again on Passover, sacrifice the lamb, and then we do it again the year after, and the year after, and the year after. But Jesus has been sacrificed once for all, Hebrews says. The one blood sacrifice that we need. So he says... Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Do you remember? Early in his ministry, Jesus comes walking down, and there's John the Baptist baptizing people and preaching repentance. Do you remember? And John sees Jesus, who's his relative, by the way. Don't get me started on that, but it's true. And John says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of your family, of the world. Wow. One lamb, the blemishless, 
Jesus Christ, who is God forever in heaven, comes to earth as a man for the purpose of, yes, teaching, yes, doing miracles, yes, gathering disciples, but the main reason he's there is to die. That's the main reason. You're, you're going to be the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the blemishless lamb. Our Passover lamb's been sacrificed. Therefore, verse 8, let's keep the festival. Now, the festival was Passover, and as Passover starts, so does the Feast of Unleavened, Unyeasted Bread. Let's keep the festival, not with the old yeast, not with sin, not with the, Jude uh, the Jewish holiday, although you can celebrate it now that you know about Jesus, but not that way. Not with the old yeast, not with the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast. The bread of, now we know it's symbolic, because look, the bread of sincerity and truth. The sacrifice for sins. Um, Josephus, a Jew who was a Roman historian for the Roman Empire, writes that one year, this is sometime after Jesus died and before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. In one Passover that he counted, or had people count, 250,000 little lambs were sacrificed for Passover. So the Jews, that is the covering for sin, the Passover lamb, until Messiah comes. It's just one problem. If you know about Judaism, you know that in 70 AD, the Romans had had enough of the Jews. They come to Jerusalem. They sack the city, burn most of it down. They take somewhere between um, 500,000 and a million Jews captive as slaves, and they burn the temple in Jerusalem where Passover took place, where the lambs were sacrificed. They burn it to the ground. But it's mostly stone with a lot of gold. And the Roman soldiers notice, hey, there's, there's a lot of gold that melted between the rocks. And the order is given, okay, as a little reward for you, you Roman soldiers, go ahead, take it apart stone by stone. Remember Jesus, Matthew 24 said, you see this temple? Not even one stone will be left on another. It's all going to be torn down. It would be like saying Washington, D.C. will be leveled. And you would think, come on. Now with nuclear bombs, it's not that hard. In those days, this big temple, gone, gone. And it was. Since 70 AD, it's almost 2,000 years, the Jews have not sacrificed one lamb. They don't have a high priest. They don't have the temple. They have not sacrificed a single lamb. Judaism is not the same. Do you know why? Because they missed it. Missed what? The fact that Jesus was their Messiah. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's our Passover Lamb. But there's a difference. The, pass, the Lamb that you brought for your family, Tom brings for his family, here's our Lamb. The priest, by the way, could look at it and say, no, get another one. This one isn't good. And they were ripping people off, charging ridiculous prices for lambs and what have you. Um, the Lamb would be sacrificed. Did the lamb understand? No, right? The lamb had no idea what's going on. What are you doing with that knife? Come here, right? 
not a pretty sight. It was a bloody holiday. It sounds so nice, Passover. It was bloody. The difference is this. Jesus willingly did it, right? I'm okay with it. It's worth it. I love these people. I'll die for them. All that believe in his sacrifice are saved. Chuck Missler used to tell the story. Wendy used to work for Chuck. Did you ever hear the story about the guy that had the dream? I heard Chuck Messler told the story about a friend of his that had a dream, um, a very picturesque and, and, and um, vivid, a friend of his had, who was a Christian, about Jesus being told by God the Father. Keep in mind, this isn't scripture. It's just a dream. It's an analogy. And God says to the Son of God, Jesus, those people on earth are sinners. They need a savior. Um, and so the analogy is this. You're going to have to go down to a planet and save that those people. And Jesus says, okay. And the father says, I got to tell you though, you're going to um, go there and it's a planet of vicious Doberman pinchers and um, vicious uh, bulldogs and pit bulls, and they're just all rabid. The whole planet is full of rabid dogs. That's who lives on the planet. And Jesus says, okay, I'll go. And God the Father says, oh, one other detail. You're going to be going as a little toy poodle, and they're going to rip you to shreds. And he still says, okay, I love them. I'll go. That's what he did for you and me. That's why our conduct matters. We can't just say, thanks for the sacrifice. Thanks for the freedom. Now I can sin all I want. No, just the opposite. Get rid of every bit of sin, every bit of leaven. Okay, let's keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of sin, malice, wickedness, but with, the, with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. One last thing. We're saved by our faith. We confess that we're sinners. Our sins are forgiven, listen, past, present, and even future. That's not a license to sin. So the past is already done and it's forgiven. So is the present. What about the future? Tomorrow, probably you're going to sin, right? So am I. What do you, so what? So what this? We, so, we know that it grieves the Holy Spirit. God doesn't like it. It's disobedient. Do you know what we do? It used to be called spiritual breathing in the 70s, meaning the minute you sin, you recognize that it's a sin and you confess your sin to God. I know what I just said or did or thought was a sin. I turn from it, Father, please forgive me. And he does. Okay, got pretty quiet in here. You still awake? Say amen. Okay. Passover. So that's the whole story. That's the, why the yeast is a big deal, because yeast is sin in the Bible. Let's keep reading, shall we? Verse 9. I have written you in my letter. Wait, what letter? The previous letter. The real 1 Corinthians. We don't have it. Was it not, was it not Holy Spirit inspired? We don't know. I would guess no, it wasn't. If God wanted us to have that first letter, we'd have it, right? We have first and second Corinthians. It's really second and third Corinthians. I've written you in my letter. That's a previous letter. 
not to associate with sexually immoral people, porneia people, okay? Got it? They, that's what he wrote, they misunderstood. They thought he meant everybody, unbelievers who are sexually immoral, which is pretty much everybody in the city of Corinth. Corinth had a pagan temple with a thousand, we said this before, a thousand temple prostitutes. And the way they would worship is the men would come, pay money, sleep with these prostitutes, and it was an act of worship. Yeah, right. Maybe of Satan. I've written in my letter, verse 9, not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning, or I didn't mean the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. In other words, he's correcting them. When I said don't associate with people who are immoral, I meant in your church. He's going back to the herald with his dad's wife, right? He's saying anybody that claims to be a Christian and is immoral, you have to not associate with them. Don't eat with them. Don't hang with them. Outside world, don't worry about that. They're, you witness to them, they get saved, that's different. If they're not saved, don't expect them to live Christian lives. They're not Christians. Okay, he'll explain it now better than I am. Not to associate with sexually immoral people, verse 9. Verse 10, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, meaning unbelievers, or the, now he's going to list some categories of sins. We already had one. Did you see it? Immoral. That's all the sex stuff that's a sin. Or the greedy, or swindlers, or idolaters. Now, various translations have different words here, um, but the categories are fairly clear if you really look. Um, so he is, so they can associate with in business or their neighbor or whatever, unbelievers, right? What did Jesus say in Matthew 28? Go to all Christians, go into all the world and preach the gospel, make disciples, right? Of all peoples, baptizing them. And we got to spread the word. Have you ever thought, I wish I could live in, my wife and I joke about this. Where would you like to move if we left California or another country? Or, I wish we could live in Christian land everybody's Christian. You don't even lock your doors. Everybody praises the Lord. There's no sin. There's no crime. There's no, why don't we start a little Christian commune and buy 5,000 acres in Montana or somewhere and just build big fences and it just be us. It's not biblical. How will the unsaved hear unless somebody talks to him, right? Witness to him. Okay. Um, and to do that, you'd have to leave this world. By the way, you will leave this world, right? And you will eventually live in, wait for it, Christianland, where it's all Christians and Jesus and God are there. It's called heaven, right? But in the meantime, we're behind enemy lines. We're outnumbered, and we're supposed to tell people how different life is now that Jesus got a hold of me that this is the truth. This book is the real deal. I testify. I know what I was before. I know what he's making me into. No, I'm not perfect. I got a long way to go. But uh, 
God has done amazing things in my life. That way you'd have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you, verse 11, that you must not associate, listen to this, who do I shun? Who do I excommunicate? Don't associate, verse 11, with anyone who calls himself a brother or sister, meaning, oh, I'm a Christian, but and you use drugs all the time. We love it at our house. You're a Christian? Yes. And you're sleeping with somebody else that's not your wife? Yeah. But God understands if that person says they're a Christian, woman or man, it says brother there, I know that's meaning Christian, calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or a slanderer or a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, don't even eat or woman. That's the... Now, if your neighbor lives next door to you, is not a Christian, you can hang with them, but be careful because sin is contagious like the flu. If you're around it enough, you start to loosen up. That's why meeting together, the fellowship of believers, there's a, something about it that is more powerful than the adding up each individual one on the screen. And here, something about being together is so much more powerful in the power of the Holy Spirit when we meet together. I'm not saying you can't pray by yourself in a forest or you can't repent on your own, but we need each other. Hebrews says, listen, this is a command. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, which is the habit of some. Don't do it. We meet every week here, 10 a.m., 6 p.m. here. Anyway, making you people on Zoom feel guilty who live locally. All right. Let's see. Um, so that's what he's talking about there. Let's look at the categories of sins, shall we? This is the don't do it portion of our Bible study. How are we doing on time? Eight minutes. Um, don't associate with somebody who says, I'm a Christian, but they're, number one, sexually immoral. We already said adultery, fornication, sex before marriage, sex, I'm a single person, but I'm having sex, homosexuality, transvestitism. He's going to get into detail as we go on. Um, even the person that says, I'm a Christian, but I, I love pornography. I look at it every day. Don't associate with that person. And you know what? You can explain why. Here's my verse. There it is. I'm not supposed to associate with you because you're saying you're a Christian. Okay, that's the first category. Second category, greedy. Um, I, I, I should have written it down and I don't have it in front of me what the other uh, translations say for these categories. Um, oh, there it is. Um, some, have, uh, some translations have harpox, which is extortioners, those who steal, or covetous. I'm sorry, that's the one before it. So this is a money person, right? I'm a Christian, but they're very materialistic. They can't wait to show you their new Rolex watch, $42,000. Thank you very much. No, this isn't. It's a cheap watch. But anyway, um, they're so greedy. It's all about money. Why? Because these people are phonies. They have, God hasn't gotten a hold of them enough yet. They haven't been convicted of their sin. Okay, what's the next category? Um, let's see. 
immoral, greedy, swindlers, that's the extortioners, harpox, those who steal by violence, okay? Those two go together. Why? Because it's all about money, uh, material goods, right? Next category, uh, idolaters. What's an idolater? Somebody that has an idol. What's an idol? An idol is anything that you worship that's not God, okay? And it can be these people in Corinth, there was all kinds of idols, false gods, pagan gods. There was a bunch of them. You could take your pick. Same thing in Greece and Athens, Paul discovers this. But let me tell you, most people today in America don't bow down to some pagan god. There's 330 million gods, so-called, in Hinduism. That's a lot of gods. How many of those are real gods, Joe? None. Elsewhere in this book, we learn that they're all false gods. Allah in Islam, Buddha, Confucius, Jim Jones, whoever you want to talk about. But I'll tell you there's some other idols, okay? Money is an idol. In Colossians, greed is called idolatry. It's an idol. For some people, it's everything. It's the thing they think about the most. What else is sex, power, money, fame, good looks. Some people just, anybody see Madonna on the Grammys with all that plastic surgery? She just really looked great. No, she didn't. Okay, sorry. It seems cruel. I shouldn't have said it that way, but you know what I mean? There's all kinds of idols people have. Anything that you put in place of God. Another way to say it is this. The thing whatever it is that you say, if I lost that, that's the end of my life. There'd be no reason for living, which means it can even be good things like, listen, your kids, your grandkids, your, your wife, your husband, your parents, your, those are good things. But you ought to say, no matter what, like Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. What you have in Jesus Christ, you can't lose. That's confidence. Idolaters, okay, slanderers, people that go around ruining the reputation of others. Uh, a character assassin, revilers, some translations have. I got to rush through these because we're running low on time. Um, he's just giving examples, okay? You can't say, well, the sin is in here. Next one is a drunkard. That's pretty clear, Right? Included in that is all those other substances. Well, Harold's not a drunkard, but he uses heroin and cocaine. Same thing. It's the same thing. Um, sin. These are believers who are doing this stuff, listen, habitually. Not he got drunk once six years ago. I'm not going to hang out with him. No, no. He probably confessed it and he's not doing it anymore. I'm talking about the guy that constantly is doing these things. It's a way of life for them. Or a swindler, somebody that, you know, rips people off for money. Okay, with such a man, don't even eat. What will that do? Number one, his influence won't be a part of your life, A. B, he will know the reason you're not returning his calls, you've already told him is because you're, you're saying you're a Christian and you're constantly fill in the blank getting drunk or greedy or sexually immoral or slandering people or, by the way, slandering, let me step, step on some toes. You know what's included in that? Gossip. 
I shouldn't be telling you this, but you know what I heard about? I'm just telling you so you can know how to pray, but here's what I heard. Don't do it. Okay. Um, just about out of time. Most of you are asleep anyway. Um, with such a man, don't even eat. You mean at McDonald's or anywhere? Listen, in that culture, to have a meal with someone implied partnership, agreement, friendship, loyalty. In fact, if you eat under my roof, I'm also implying I will protect you against others if they come to this house to try to get you. You are part of my posse. You are my people. That person is a Christian and a phony sinning constantly. Don't eat with them. Hopefully the goal is, again, like the guy Harold with his father's wife, the goal is restoration because he'll miss the fellowship with you and the good meals that you cook at your house. Okay. What business, verse 12, is it of mine to judge those outside the church? He's talking about unbelievers. They're sinners, those people. They are. They don't know. So were you, he's going to say pretty soon. Are you not to judge those inside? Yes. Don't be pointing the finger at all the sinners outside the church. They are sinners. They need Jesus. Are you witnessing to them? But inside the church, we are supposed to judge with a righteous judgment. What about, last thing, what about Matthew 7? Judge not, lest you be judged. What he talks about there is judging hypocritically. And he gives an analogy in the Gospels about a guy who says, hey, you know, you've got a speck in your eye, a minor fault. Let me help you get that out. And the person saying it has a log coming out of his own eye. He's got a much bigger sin problem, but he loves to point out sin here and there. Jesus says, get the log out of your own eye. Then you can help your brother, right? Repent, in other words. Let's close with prayer and we'll get out of here. We're out of time. Father in heaven, thank you for the beauty of this passage. It's a little uncomfortable, God. We don't want to be judgmental. On the other hand, we're commanded to be in a church setting. Not that we're looking with binoculars and telescopes for every little sin everywhere, but when there's blatant, unrepentant sin that is confronted and yet the person is arrogant, give us the boldness, the obedience to gently correct a brother, correct him more than once, and if they won't be corrected, to boot them out of the church so that they will be repentant and restored. Thank you for the beauty of the gospel, God. Thank you. You've given us a thousand gifts, each one, maybe way more than that. But thank you for the best gift of all, the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, who came to the earth to die in our place out of the love he had for us. The least we can do, God, besides believe, is obey. Help us to do so, God, and live these truths out week to week, day by day. We pray these things in Jesus' name with great thanksgiving. Amen. Those of you that are here, make sure you say hello to someone that you didn't say hello to on the break. They're still waiting to see you. And those of you on Zoom, God bless you. Thank you for being here. See you next time. God bless.